Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. Now, Trisha, I think most Nerdette listeners know not to take us too seriously, but we are, in fact, capital J journalists. We went to journalism school. We work in a newsroom. And we believe in journalism for all those lofty, important democracy sorts of reasons, which means we have a lot of respect for the people who don't sit in studios like we're doing right now, Mm -hmm. but do journalism in very dangerous places. People like war correspondents. Weirdly enough, I actually considered being a war correspondent for a second. Me too, a little. Really? I bet I considered it less seriously than you did just because I feel like I consider most things less seriously than you do. But I never in my life have even had a passport, so I guess (laughs) I didn't take it that seriously. But I do have a ton of respect for war correspondents, people like Kim Barker. Kim was a war correspondent for the Chicago Tribune between 2004 and 2009, and she wrote a book about her experience. It's called The Taliban Shuffle, Strange Days in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's a true story, and it's harrowing and hilarious all at once. That dark comedic tone of Kim's story is what prompted the new movie based on her life, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, starring Tina Fey. When we talked with Kim, we asked her when she knew she had to write a story about her time in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I think everybody was who was there for a long time, I mean, all the journalists always talked about, I'm going to write a book about this, or you should write a book about this, and everybody had the angle that they were going to do, and I think it was about 2006 or 2007 where I just said, oh, I'm going to write a funny book about Afghanistan, and it's going to be darkly comic, and everybody there immediately understood what I meant, you know, because if you're there for a long time, you see all the absurd things and uh, strange things that happen. But it wasn't really real. I didn't, you know, everybody, again, talks about doing their books and the books they're finally going to do. It wasn't until 2008 and 2009 that I really took the idea seriously. And um, it was all kind of up to what happened with my job at the Tribune, right? Because I was so, I just wanted to stay there so bad. Looking back, I feel like, why did you want to stay there so bad? (laughs) But at the time, I really wanted to stay. I was just, I had fallen full on down the rabbit hole and I wanted to stay in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I wanted to keep my job. And I wanted to, and this is how naive I was. I wanted to see how the story ended. You know, (laughs) there's no end yet. Just two more years. Yeah, yeah, just two more years. I just, it's like, well, it's like, you know, it's kind of like drugs. Just two more years. Just two more years. If you give me two years, then I'll pack a cigarette. Yeah, exactly. Then, Then I'll actually be done with this. So, you know, with the Tribune deciding to call its correspondence back, it was probably the best thing to ever happen to me because I made this decision that to me at this point sounds pretty r- ridiculous. You know, I quit my job in you know March of 2000, April 2009, somewhere in that time period. That wasn't the best time to decide to quit your job because it wasn't like there were a lot of places for journalists to go to. But th- that was the point where I ended up getting a fellowship at the Council on Foreign Relations and then through some like emails to various people, all of a sudden I found myself in the position where people actually wanted the book and they wanted to see if I could do it. That's perfect because you say that the movie is like a truthy version of the book. Right. I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't seen it yet, but what were some of the main points for you that were either were or weren't there that stood out to you? 
Well, I liked the fact that, especially in watching the movie the second time, I liked the whole idea that like they reflected the war. And I didn't really catch that the first time around. The first time around, I was so busy making sure does the story track, you know, are people laughing, you know, and like, is, is this actually a movie? You know, much like, <laughs> is, was this a book? Is this actually a movie? <laughs> I think it's a movie. I'm pretty sure it's a movie. So it was, it was like interesting to me. It's like in watching it the second time, it really sort of captures the futility of war to me and mm-hmm. like the sort of repetition. And I love how they use the years. Like, here you are. Here's the year. Here's the year. And it's sort of like rinse and repeat. We're still doing, you know, we're still going through the same motions and you're not really seeing anything change one way or the other, except for it maybe getting a little bit worse. So I like that about it. I liked how it showed the absurdity um, and contrast between how, you know, we lived over there uh, and between the stories we were reporting. Uh, okay, you know, the party scenes are a little bit exaggerated in the sure. movie, right? We weren't doing coke, you know, just, just to clarify that. <laughs> That's the that. line you're drawing? There just, was no cocaine? Just to clarify that Chicago Tribune, we were not doing coke. Um, okay. But it was know. exciting when somebody had decent alcohol? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it was very exciting. I mean, like, you know, you found yourself doing things like paying $45 for a bottle of Jacob's Creek, you know? <laughs> Jacob's Creek. And I mean, any other bottle of wine that had like an animal on the, you know, you know, the animal yeah, yeah, bottles yeah. of wine that, you know, are usually like six ninety or like three buck Chuck, you yeah. know, those were like, you know, $40 and you would yeah. willingly pl- pay it because, you know, you just like at a certain point there would feel like uh, I just need some way to unwind and you can't go running down the street. You didn't really have any kind of freedom. You couldn't even go walking down the street. So I think it became this sort of unhealthy lifestyle. I mean, at least it did for me where you were just working all the time. And when you weren't working, you were going out or, you know, hanging out with friends. And it was very much like going through college again, you know, and in a way, except a much more unhealthy and dangerous uh, college. So when you were living it, did you look around and think this is really unhealthy? But or was it not until you were able to kind of take a step back and look around? Oh, heck, we all knew it was unhealthy. (laughs) I mean, like, no, I I had a friend who was just be like, you know, and we lived in a place called the Fun House, um, you know, and it was known as the Fun House in in Kabul because we had all these taxi services, well, maybe two or three taxi services that catered to foreigners. And there wasn't a- addresses, right? So in Kabul, so you had to sort of, sometimes you'd know the street number. Sometimes they, the street didn't have a number and you, you would just say the house. And we were like the Fun House. And that's what the drivers knew us as. And there was just this sort of like sense that, you know, a friend friend of mine there would be like, yesterday I thought six o'clock was okay to have a beer. You know, now I'm thinking five o'clock is okay to have a beer. <laughs> When's it going to turn to four o'clock? You know, and we all knew that like... Probably tomorrow. All, yeah. And we, yeah, exactly. If we keep on in the, at this current rate. But we all knew, even as it was going on, that it wasn't necessarily healthy. But I would challenge anybody who sort of watches the movie and say, oh, that was decadent, how horrible that is, to go and live that lifestyle and not to have some sort of need for release. And it's great to talk about yoga. My mother always talks about yoga. You could have just done yoga. (laughs) And I'm like, you could have just done yoga. (laughs) That's a great mom thing to say. I know. I know, right? (laughs) You would find people leaving out of Afghanistan and they'd be like, I went on a a detox retreat and I did yoga for a week and I'm feeling really healthy. And, you know, and then they'd come back. 
back for a while and stick on the plan and then eventually, you know, just sort of fall w- right back into the old way of doing things. I mean, I was luckier than most because I got out much more than other folks did. You know, I was based out of, you know, I had houses in India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. I mean, I know that sounds awesome to a lot of people, right? I could just go to India at any time if I, if I needed to. And, you know, you always... Yoga's good there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're known for their yoga. Still to come on Nerdette, Kim tells us what it's like to realize the story of your life has been signed over to Saturday Night Live royalty. And after that, we have some boozy homework from Amy Stewart. She's the author of Girl Waits with Gun, which is a historical novel about the first lady detective in the United States. Based on a true story also involves whiskey also. (laughs) Is that enough correlation for you people? This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. And this week we are talking with Kim Barker. She's the author of The Taliban Shuffle, which has just been made into a movie called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. She says it was surreal having Tina Fey play her in a movie. Even more surreal, the moment when she realized she'd signed over her life rights to legends from Saturday Night Live. People like Lauren Michaels, Robert Carlock, and of course, Tina Fey. Kim says the origin story of the movie actually comes from a book review back when the Taliban shuffle came out in 2011. I think it has everything to do with Michiko Kakatani at the New York (laughs) Times, who I've never met. And I feel like I never want to be in the same room with her because then if she actually meets me, she's going to think, oh, God, that's the one who wrote the book. (laughs) The book was so much better because she wrote a review of the book um, back when it came out in March of 2011, where she loved it. She named it one of her top 10 of the year. And she um, said I had created a Tina Fey-like character. And from that, it was like, I think two weeks later, Paramount optioned it on Tina's behalf. And um, I think there's a Google alert at play here for her name or something, right? Like that fast. I mean, I, you know, I was like, I was at work that day. I was working at ProPublica at the time. And, you know, somebody there was like, you need to tell your agent to send it over to her people. So I called my agent and I said, you should send it over to Tina Fey's and send the review and the book. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's a really smart idea, Kim. I didn't think of that. Thanks. You know, because, of course, he had done it first. He's like, wow, you're so good at my job. (laughs) And if people, you know, they they worry that they said to me, oh, God, aren't you worried that it's going to get the Saturday Night Live treatment? And I kind of feel like they're all smart and funny. And I knew that Robert and Tina wanted to be really true to the spirit of the book. And it's not like it's like a laugh out loud comedy all the time. The movie is and, and neither is the book. And some people complain like, I just the book wasn't funny all the way through. Well, and I'm like, yeah, you know, neither zone. was the war. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'll try to do better the next time around. 
So it sounds like you got to spend some time with Robert Carlock. What's it like to sit next to someone and, and, you know, what is he asking? What are you asking? What's that like to try to turn a book that's not just a book, but your life for a period of years into a screenplay? Right. I mean, you'd have to ask him what it's like because I've never written a screenplay, but I can tell you he met with me. Who's very honest with me from the beginning. Like, it wasn't a guarantee just because somebody options something that they're actually going to make it. I mean, this was kind of a long shot, I'd think. I was, you know, an unknown author, first time author. It's a darkly comic book about the war on terror. I mean, come on, the odds of that getting made aren't great. But he really liked the book, and I know she liked the book. And he was really honest about the fact that it might not get made, that he was going to do his best job possible. And he already had met with a lot of people who had been in Afghanistan before he even met with me. Because there are rules about that, Hollywood rules about when they can actually talk to the author. I don't know. But we started meeting and um, I introduced him to more people. And he, from the very beginning, said, look, I want to be true to the narrative arc of your book. And I want to be true to your story. And things are going to change. You know, it's not going to be exactly like it was in the book. And I go, yeah, you're probably not going to go to Pakistan, are you, in the movie? Because it'd be too confusing. And he goes, you'd be okay with that? And I said, yeah, I mean, I get that. And I signed away the option. It really doesn't matter what I'm okay with. (laughs) And, you know, I said, and you're probably going to make it a romantic relationship between me and my pal who was kidnapped. And he's like, maybe, I don't know yet. But you can sort of see what's going to happen because you need to make it palatable and you need to make it a good story and you need to make it fit in an hour and 45 minutes. And I kind of feel what I love about the movie is it it is true to the narrative arc of my story, even if everything in there isn't actually true. It's It's got truthiness, so yes. to speak. <laughs> and I hope that it drives more people to read the actual book. And then maybe that can like get more people thinking about Afghanistan again. I mean, I don't know. That's a, That's really wishful thinking. But I can still dream. What that got me thinking about, though, Kim, too, is, you know, you mentioned earlier even that you would tell people who you were kind of in the kabubble with that you wanted to write a funny book about Afghanistan. And they're all like, oh, yeah, that's great. I totally get it. But what was that like talking to people who don't understand Afghanistan, who had never been there? You know, oh, yeah, it's going to be funny. Like, how? what were reactions like? How do you explain that to people? I mean, some people like would be like, what's funny about it? And I said, well, it's situationally funny. It's absurd. It's dark comedy. And then you just have to say, you know, like Catch-22, like MASH. And then I think everybody understands that. I'm like, it's not like I'm making fun of Afghans and Pakistanis or the military or anything like that. I would never do that. Instead, I tend to more take the piss out of myself. And it's more self-deprecating humor, which I think is of the line that Tina Fey does really well. And it's also just really situational. It's like I had things happen to me. Like, for instance, getting, you know, the whole idea of me going to shoot guns with the future attorney general of Afghanistan. Well, that's true. I did go to shoot guns with him, although I'm from Montana. I'm wearing my Montana shirt today in honor of that. (laughs) And I would never just sort of spray bullets like that around. I I was very measured with how I was shooting the gun because you don't waste ammunition like that. (laughs) Well, and so so you grew up in Montana in this sort of dusty place full of guns. You go to a Mm -hmm. new one. Was there a little bit of street cred given to you by being able to do that, to go out and shoot and sure. and do that? Was trying to figure out the ways that you could not compromise yourself but sort of fit in a part of that relationship building there more so than it is when you report here in the U.S.? I mean, here's the deal. It's like when you're reporting here – and it's always – I think reporting as a woman – 
anywhere is like this interesting thing. Because you go to journalism school, you know, you get these professors and like a lot of these were male professors who are like, okay, source building. You got to go out to drinks with them after work, talk sports, you know, find something in common (laughs) and talk about it. And I would do this like, you know, and in the beginning of my career, I'd be like, hey, you want to meet for a drink? (laughs) You know, and you would sometimes find yourself in situations where all of a sudden you thought you were going to talk about some super secret thing going on in the place you're covering and all of a sudden you're getting hit on by the guy you've asked out and you're like oh i just kind of i kind (laughs) of might have put myself in this situation so then you're like okay i'm gonna go to lunch i'm gonna ask people to go to lunch you know lunch feels more platonic lunch lunch feels very platonic (laughs) you know meanwhile all the guys are like yeah we went up for drinks i went up for the drinks with the mayor last night you know and you just know that okay i can't do that or at least you have to have more of a friendship established before you ask somebody out to drink. So you learn that. <laughs> and the thing is, is when you're in a place like Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's no time off, right? You're working all the time and you're socializing with the very people that you could be writing about. And you always have to draw this line. And I don't know how often people understand it, like when you're in a country where the culture is, I mean, there's so many times that they they do this in the movie, and this happened to me in real life, where, are you my friend? And friend becomes this really weird word in these countries, like, are you my friend? Well, we are friendly, and I'm a reporter, and I'm here to do my job. But we are friendly, and I like talking to you about things. And if you are sick, I will visit you in the hospital because I will do that. And you also are socializing out like at night with diplomats and with people from the U.N. And they might say things when they're drinking that are of interest to you. And I always like would tell everybody like we've got a rule. Anything that happens in the off hours That's off the record. It's always going to be off the record with me. Now, will I call you tomorrow and ask you if I can put it on the record? Yeah, sure, I will. You had to establish those sort of rules that people felt comfortable with and where you felt comfortable with them. So you felt like you could do your job. And then, like, you know, there was a thing that happened with Nawaz Sharif where I would tell the bosses what was going on with it. And it it was a funny story for a while because he never made his intentions clear. And then when he finally made his intentions clear. That he um, wanted you to be a special friend. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he gave me the line because he had asked me at one point. I mean, it was when the country was falling apart and like we're meeting and he's like, asked me if I had a friend and I was like, I have a lot of friends, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what friend do you speak of? And he's like, well, you know, a friend. And we just keep going back like that. And I'm like, do you mean like a boyfriend? And I wanted to see where this was going to go, and I had just broken up with somebody. And he said, well, I want to fix you up. I'll fix you up with somebody. What are your conditions? And I give him my conditions, you know, like tall, funny, smart. Um, <laughs> and he's like, tall is going to be very difficult. This is a country of <laughs> – like, I think he like, said something like – it's in the book. This is a country of short people, and, and, and you are very tall. And then he was like, funny he got. He's a very funny guy. And then smart, he was like grilling me on, what do you mean? Smart, clever, you know, he's like, you don't want a cunning boyfriend. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, nobody wants a cunning boyfriend. You know, (laughs) that'd be a bad thing. We just know. And so then like I had talked to Pakistani friends about this and they said, oh, he's just acting like your Punjabi uncle. You know, it's this whole desire to fix up single people. And I was kind of curious. I'm like, this is going to be a good story. I'm kind of curious. And as a journalist, you're always like, I want to see where this story goes. Yeah, where does this thread go? Yeah, I'm going to (laughs) pull on this thread for a while. 
Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I feel like, especially in dating life, I find myself doing that where I'm like, well, it'll be a good story. It'll be fine. And then I'm like, really, Greta? Yeah, yeah. Really? Was that a really good idea? The Prime Minister of Pakistan on Tinder? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, he certainly is not. Okay. So, yeah, what did you think about not naming him? Like, what was that like? No, I didn't think about it. For sure, you were going to. I knew for sure. I mean, look, I knew what happened. I had started taking notes on it at a certain point. I had showed the text messages to plenty of people. I had told my bosses about what was happening, and I made sure. And also, I'm pretty sure the ISI was listening to all of our phone calls. So I knew he didn't really have deniability here. And what I felt about it, I wasn't going to just call him the former, you know, some high up person because it begs the question of who. And as a female reporter, I think it shows something when you're in a country and somebody who's the former leader of the country and now the leader of the country again, he's now the prime minister there. And he's, he had formerly declared himself as the leader of the faithful and really had this sort of I'm a pious sort of Islamic man image to his country. Well, if this is what he's doing with the foreign reporter, and he was always very polite with me, but what is happening with local women there? And what does this show about the sort of double game that Pakistan has played? And I really felt like he was a microcosm of the country. And, you know, if anybody studied Pakistan at all, you know, in the very beginning, after 9-11, there was very much this double game that was being played. And America felt like this is our ally. Bush was coming out and saying, you know, Musharraf's our guy in Pakistan and, and Musharraf saying all the right things. And meanwhile, you have the sense that al-Qaeda is being rounded up a bit in as long as it was like, you know, the al-Qaeda that Pakistan didn't want. But the Taliban really was given free reign for a very long time in Pakistan. And, you know, that's only changed recently. And it kind of depends on the the group of Taliban that you're with, what actually Pakistan will do. So Kim, what's next for you? I'm at the New York Times right now, where I'm on this uh, special, you know, metro investigative desk, and I get to do long form stories about things in New York that are of interest. And I've tended to focus so far on Homelessness issues on people who are being exploited by profiteers. It's great. It's my Fun entire stuff. yeah yeah. My entire career has always been about like yeah. I know it sounds like a cliche. It's a journalism cliche, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. But I'm incredibly lucky because I get to continue to do it, and I got to do it at the Tribune, and now I'm getting to do it at the Times. Well, we hope you keep doing it, Kim Barker. Thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thanks so much for having me. some homework from friend of Nerdette and author Amy Stewart. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And Trisha, this week's homework comes with a caveat. 21 and over only, please. It's from author Amy Stewart, who we've had on the show before. She writes about plants and bugs and once wrote a whole book called The Drunken Botanist that explored the natural history of alcohol. She makes science accessible and fun. Her newest book is historical fiction. It's called Girl Waits with Gun, and it tells the story of Constance Cop, who was one of the first female sheriff deputies in the United States. Also a truthy version of a real woman in history. Maybe Tina Fey should be in this movie. Oh, there you Maybe go. this should be a movie. Here's Amy. I came up with a drink for Girl Waits with Gun, even though there's really not a lot of drinking in the book. I was looking for something of the era that maybe had a name that tied in with the themes in the book, and I found a drink from the 1910s called the Automobile. And I thought, perfect. The Automobile is equal parts gin, sweet vermouth, and scotch. 
it's terrible. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> Don't ever do that. <laughs> so here's my improvement on the automobile. And these would be like a half ounce each. So you do like a half ounce each of uh, gin, sweet vermouth, and applejack. Okay. Much more palatable and a New Jersey spirit, so it fits with a New Jersey story. There you go. And in addition to those three things, a little spoonful of jam. Ooh. Yeah, I love jam in cocktails. Um, That's not a thing from the 1910s, but they had jam in the 1910s, so it counts. It's not anachronistic. But putting jam in a cocktail adds the sugar that simple syrup would otherwise add and some fruit, but also some beautiful color. Like if you use raspberry or blueberry, you can get the most amazing colors. So then you have to strain it through one of those fine mesh strainers to get the jam bits out. But put that in a glass and then pour some champagne on top, like a couple more ounces of champagne. It's a lovely drink. I called it the New Jersey automobile because it's an upgrade of the automobile and it's New Jersey specific. This is so much good advice, Amy. Thank you. (laughs) Never realized I could put two of my favorite things together. Whiskey and jam. Mm, See, I'm more excited about the champagne and jam angle of this, but this might actually be the drink in our Venn diagrams, Trisha, that both of us really enjoy. And I guess the virgin version of this cocktail is just jam. (laughs) Everything else is booze. So for those of you who don't drink alcohol, we suggest to drink jam. For everyone else, maybe try that cocktail. In any case, you will love Girl Waits with Gun regardless of your age. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault. Our interns are Maya Cole and Seabrin Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you are, in fact, already listening to us. But we'd love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on Stitcher or iTunes. Maybe follow us on NPR One. And wherever you're listening to us, go ahead and give us a review. As many stars as humanly possible, please. (laughs) It helps spread the good word about Nerdette. You can join the superhero squad of people who've done so, like ArtGal0908, who I think sold their first painting on September 8th. (laughs) I really thought about this. I really want these names to have great meaning. I don't want it to just be their birthday. I want it to be about a more significant life event. I have a feeling. I guess it's not more significant than the day of your existence. But you don't do any work really on your birthday. Your mom does. That's true. Really, on birthdays, we should just give presents to our mothers. (laughs) It should be more of a Mother's Day thing. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where you can find delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes waiting for you at wbez.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.